Welcome to Reels on the Rocks, the show where your hosts Whiskey and Sweet Tea discuss film from the unpretentious perspective. It's Whiskey's favorite time of the year, Spooktober. So rinse off your knives and join us for Whiskey's killer kinos. In tonight's episode, we will be discussing Poltergeist, which celebrated its 40th anniversary this year. Don't forget to like, subscribe, hit that notification bell, and as always, please be advised that spoilers are ahead. Hello, listeners, and welcome to, you know, Whiskey's favorite month of the year. Welcome to spooky time, everybody. It's, <laughs> it's that time of year where I finally, finally get to talk about what I like talking about because I've been good this year. So far, I think this is the first horror movie we've talked about all all year. So is it? very excited. Oh, yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, it is. You're right. It is. <laughs> like I said, I've, I was trying to uh, be good about branching out into other genres and I believe at least for the ones we have planned, these two are the only like horror quote-unquote movies we've got set up so you know being good uh but very excited as as you said this is my favorite time of year and this is a movie that i was surprised you'd never seen before i had not seen this movie before and it's one that i wanted to see for a while um so that's kind of why i threw it on the list I'm like oh what a perfect excuse to finally watch it for those of you who haven't seen the title yet this episode we're going to be discussing the 1982 horror classic poltergeist Woo! So, All right, so, so and, T, what are you drinking? Okay, so I am super lazy. I went to the liquor store to go and, like, make a cocktail. And I found, you know, those little, like, you know how they always have those little mini bottles for you to try? Of yeah. a gin called Poltergeist. It's Poltergeist gin. So I am having gin. <laughs> That's actually impressive. That's called I, Poltergeist. The- <laughs> I actually, man, I don't even like gin, but that's cool. I don't I either. Try that that's now. why. That's why I got the mini bottle. <laughs> I'm now doing I wanna, this for the show. Well, now I want to try that gin just because of the name. I'm being. You're not the only one being lazy on it. Like so, partly. Be, there's so many things you could drink this time of year, but because of the setting and because of kind of the tone and mood and atmosphere of this movie, I thought of doing something a little bit more suburban. So I went with a beer. I think this time of year is kind of a good beer season or cider or whiskey or like anything Mm -hmm. kind of more like warm tasting, if that makes any sense. I wanted to do Sam Adams, Boston law or Sam Adams, uh, Oktoberfest, but I, all I had time to do before we recorded was go to the grocery store and my, local grocery store apparently sucks because all they had was regular sam adams but (laughs) i'm okay i'm okay with that for any of you who don't know uh the two of us went to boston for college and this you know this this is a a beer that if you like beer it's like you it's it's your civic duty to drink it yeah it's kind of like everybody there has at least or it's usually the go it's usually like the go-to i don't want to say cheap beer but it's like the go-to beer yeah, I'd say it's more mid-priced, but the cool thing about it is it actually lives up to its expectation. Like, I, I actually think it's pretty good, and I haven't had it in forever because, you know, when I lived there, it was, like, all the time, like Sam Adams, but I don't know the last time I've had it. It might have, it's it maybe it's been years, so I just figured I'd go have, like, a nostalgia trip this episode with a nice beer, 
you know, reminds me of the opening of this movie with all the guys huddled around the crappy TV. Yeah, I almost went with cider for that that very reason. I'm glad I found that at the last minute. <laughs> right, so, oh, and I already had a sip. Ooh, the memories, they're flooding back. They're flooding back all the poor decisions you made. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, right? <laughs> Led me here, so I'm happy about them, right? So, yeah, let's finally, finally talk about this movie. So I'm curious what you think. So first, before we do that, let's get into the basics. So yes. this movie is directed by Toby Hooper, who you probably know from his Texas Chainsaw Massacre days. Yep. I was um, curious if you were going to get that in your research. So I'm very and, you know, I'll let you I'm going to let you finish, Taylor. But okay. uh, <laughs> no, <Okay>. but uh, <laughs> what I uh, the guy, he always everyone always thinks of him as the Texas Chainsaw guy. But he went on to make a bunch of movies. And this one is kind of special for me because it's cool that he was working with Spielberg. Yeah. Which I know you're going to get into with everyone who was involved in stuff. But right. it's kind of cool how, again, he's known for this intense, scary, everyone thinks is like really gory movie. And then he did this kind of borderline family-friendly horror movie with Spielberg and Industrial Lights and Magic and all these people we're always talking about from this era of filmmaking that did Star Wars and all this stuff. So it's cool. Like, this, I, I always love to throw in, like, if anyone talks about Toby Hooper and they don't know that he directed this movie, I like to be like, hey, I bet you saw a uh, uh, Toby Hooper film when you were a lot younger than you realize. <laughs> You did. But anyway, even Taylor, know. continue. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Um, so the music was done by the very talented Jerry Goldsmith. Um, mm -hmm. He's done one of my favorite movie scores of all time. He did the score for the movie Rudy. Um, I actually have that Dude. on vinyl. I love that soundtrack. And this score, Dude, this, this music, I, I forgot how good this music was. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'll say going into this with horror movies, it's, you can't really call a lot of them wholesome. Mm-hmm. But this one feels very wholesome, and a lot of that has to do with this music and the kind of feeling it brings on. And it's it's interesting because I was also another one of your favorites I was thinking about while watching this that came out slightly before was the Amityville Horror. Mm -hmm. And the way they did the music in that one was like kind of creepy children singing. I actually kind of like that one, though. I kind of like both. I don't think it's bad. Yeah. I don't think it's bad. Again, like this movie has a very wholesome vibe to it and the interesting thing is if you played the score for this movie to someone out of context i don't think that they would guess that it was even in a horror movie right right because it's very nice and quaint and comforting sounding yeah and it works really well with kind of the story and also like what with what's going on because it's about this like very mundane neighborhood being overtaken by this malevolent paranormal force mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it juxtaposes like the scary stuff happening with this like really nice happy music yeah and i never noticed it before but watching it again for this show i was like wow this music fits really well and strangely because if you really pay attention to how it sounds it really doesn't you wouldn't think it would fit well with this movie right right yes yeah, so the score in this movie is fantastic. Uh, the cinematography was done by by Matthew F. Leonette. It was written by Steven Spielberg, Michael Grays, and Mark Victor. 
Uh, special effects, as you said, were done by Industrial Light and Magic, and it was produced by Steven Spielberg and Frank Marshall. Now let's get into the numbers. This this had a budget of ten point seven million, and it had a box office draw of one hundred twenty one point seven million. Uh, this was the highest grossing horror film of 1982 and the 8th highest grossing film of the year. Uh, let's get into accolades really quick. So, it was nominated for four Academy Awards oh, sorry, three Academy Awards for original score, sound effects, editing, visual effects, and it lost all of them to E.T. Because this was the same year. <laughs> I wonder what the highest grossing film of that year right? was. Right? <laughs> Oh my gosh, you know what else came out this year that we talked about years ago is The Thing. Oh god, that was this year too? Yeah, I remember because it would like they were saying that was probably the reason it bombed. We talked about it in that episode if anyone wants to. Oh, because to go they did back they, just had, they had super cute aliens and now the opposite yeah. it's like the opposite of ET and a yeah. lot of people including I think Cecil Siskel and Ebert were like I think people really wanted like friendly aliens. Yeah, that they year, were kind of so. vibing with that and then it was like, "Oh, no." Um, so this so, also got so, yeah. this also got some recognition at the Saturn Awards. So it was nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six awards. It won three: uh, one for best horror or thriller, one for best makeup, and one for best supporting actress for Zelda Rubenstein. It was nominated for best actress for Joe Beth Williams, best director for Toby Hooper, and best music for Jerry Goldsmith. It was nominated for one BAFTA for special effects, which it won. Um, and it was nominated for one young artist, best young supporting actress for Heather O'Rourke. It did not win that, but it was nominated. Um, it is also remembered uh, in the following list. In the New York Times, it is... Uh, categorized among their the best thousand films ever made um the afi's 100 years 100 thrills it comes in at number 84 afi's 100 years 100 movie quotes number 69 is of course they're here and the cast of this movie we had joe beth williams as diane craig t nelson as steve heather o'work as carol ann dominique dunn as dana Oliver Robbins as Robbie, Beatrice Strait as Doctor uh, Doctor Leslie Lisla. Okay, I see. I can't read my handwriting, listeners. You should know this by now. Um, we had Michael Lawson as Ryan, Martin Casella as Marty, and Zelda Rubenstein as Tangina. I think is how it's pronounced. I'm really happy that she won an award for that, by the way. We're going to get into that character later, but I'm happy because she's, in my opinion, the best character in the movie. So I'm happy that she got an award, even if it was like a Saturn award or something, because I feel like she's probably also, besides the, you know, Carol Ann, I think, you know, that's the psychic medium is the one that a lot of people think of. Another really quotable line of course, that has been kind of spoofed over the years is this house is clean. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have some thoughts about that too. Um, <laughs> I, I threw in um, some bonuses just from people that I recognize because I picked the movie. We have James Karen as Mr. Teague. Um, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Rest in he's peace. A great comedic actor. And he's also another one who, makes the movie as kind of the villain quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And then we had Michael McN Michael McManus as Ben T. Oh, Ben Tuthill. 
Um, and the reason I mentioned both those people is they both had supporting roles on different episodes of the Golden Girls. So that's Yay. why I recognize them. And then finally, <laughs> as I call him Beer Man, he had an actual name, but if I said what his name is, you have no idea who that is. So the guy who's bringing the beer and falls off his bike, that is Jerk Blocker, uh, who you may know as Hitchcock from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Also the nice. son of the late, great Dan Blocker, who I grew up with on Bonanza. That's actually, cr- I, I know the character Hitchcock from, that's crazy. I never would have known that was the same guy. Even And kudos, even though it's a fictional character, I'm kind of happy he doesn't, uh, curse out those kids for tripping them up. I feel right. really bad for as a kid. I thought it was funny, but when I see that now, I'm just like, ah, oh, gosh, that's like half of his beer and on football Sunday too. Oh no. <laughs> right. So this movie, this movie was very interesting for me because I really wanted to see this movie. And so I finally got to see it and I enjoyed it. But for me, the more I thought about it afterwards, the less I liked it. Really? Not, not for any, not for any, um, like bad reason or really anything, but to me, it was a very unfulfilling movie. Like, I think okay. the best, the best way for, at least from my experience, I could describe it is it had phenomenal acting, phenomenal special effects, but it was pretty light on the story. It was like it, it was to the point to where when there wasn't something spooky or special effecty happening, the movie was boring. Like, Part of the reason I feel like it it works not just by like it kind of reminds me of the types of movies that Spielberg was making at the time, which, again, another reason people forget that Toby Hooper directed this is because Spielberg was so hands on with writing it to the point where some people would even argue that Spielberg sort of ghost directed this. And I will touch on that. (laughs) I disagree. Like, unless you bring some info to me that, because I feel like that's almost kind of disrespectful to Toby Hooper. Like, again, you know, everyone has a lot of assumptions about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but he is a really good filmmaker. And I know that a lot of, uh, you know, his skill and his ideas went into this movie. You can tell that it was written by Steven Spielberg. I will hands down agree with anyone who it's like he was in charge of the story. And But I don't know, like we talked about this in some episode we recorded this year where I it, it gets annoying when everyone just sort of unifies every aspect of the film to the filmmaker mm-hmm. like a lot you know the special effects was were done by ILM I actually I, fi- I forget if I talked about this on a, another episode but I just watched a documentary on Disney plus about them and they talked about one of the you know all the effects that they've done over the years and it's actually pretty crazy the uh the house imploding oh the one oh when it folds in on itself. Yeah, it's literally like just a shot of they built a miniature house mm-hmm. and had all of the parts of the house attached to string. And with a high speed camera, they sucked the house through like a tube by pulling the strings all at once. Oh, my God. And that's that's, you know, and then they superimpose that on the on the shot. And that's how they did it. But it was the most difficult part. Of, you know, there was a bunch of difficult parts of this movie, but that was yeah. kind of cool. It's like, oh, you know, it's a real practical. Right. And right. that was the other thing, too, when they were making the movie is the word implosion. A lot of them were like, well, wait, like implosion explosions are easy. But what do you mean implode? Like it sucks. You know, it was 
it was <laughs> it was uh, actually kind of a, a brain teaser for a lot of the special effects people because they'd never done essentially the opposite of an explosion. So that was yeah, cool. Yeah. As well as a bunch of other things. I feel like the the one it's ironic because it's one of the bits that traumatized me as a kid, but oh God, I feel like one of the worst No, um the, you know, that did scare me as a kid, but what really freaked me out uh, when I saw this was the dude peeling his face off. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and it's funny because you watch it now and it's not very good, even like compared to other ILM stuff. Like this was, I think, right after Indiana Jones and, you know, they had Nazi faces melting and stuff. And that so comparing scared it me to that, as a kid. <laughs> yeah, it scared me as a kid. Too. In fact, actually, even as a kid, when I saw this, I didn't know who ILM was. Uh, I knew who Spielberg was, but it's that scene actually reminded me of like Temple of Doom or something. Like right, right. even as a kid, I you know when I grew up, I realized it was all made by the same people and it made sense. But when that scene happened, I was just like, oh my god, this is just like that ending in Indiana Jones, and it was. And what's weird is the effect was better in Indiana Jones, yeah. so it almost feels like they phoned it in. Uh, but yeah, like, no, I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, what was, cause the other, the other reason I was surprised you hadn't seen this is one of your favorite movies of all time is the exorcist. And yes. this kind of feels like the exorcist for kids. I like, can kind of see that. I feel like that's dumbing it down a lot, but you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I, know, I, 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 I get what you mean. There's, you know, there's, the there's even life. an exorcist character in this. Yeah. Like, and it's, and it's a woman who you would not expect to be so cool. So like. Yeah. I don't know. I, that part of the reason I was excited for you to see this is it's like, oh, it's like The Exorcist, but a lot more uh, family friendly and without all of the curse words and the masturbating with crucifixes and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> Which people are still shocked that The Exorcist is one of my favorite movies. And I'm like, I don't know. I think I for me, it's like, I guess it's the fact that it's a, it's they actually try to investigate it, you know, seriously. And it's not all weird and everything, you know, like with, I, I don't know, I, for some reason, it's just something about that whole build up to the actual when we have the big showdown at the end for me has always been one of the greatest things about The Exorcist, um, which is weird. Like I said, that why I'm like, unless there was something exciting happening, I felt, you know, kind of disinterested in the characters and everything like that. I did have a problem with the with the parents a lot. I'm like, oh, my God, these are like the most irresponsible parents ever. <laughs> Wait, in this movie? In this movie, yeah. Well, how so? So, okay. So, I mean, I'm, and I'm talking about how they're portrayed pre-paranormal pre events, which I guess you can argue that that doesn't happen because it starts off with her talking to the TV. But like, you know what I mean? Before the ma the main events start happening. There are things about the parents that weirded me out because I not this time watching it, but I feel like it was like a few years ago. I was watching it probably around Halloween. Mm -hmm. It was probably mm -hmm. on Netflix or something. And I did not. Uh, it's <laughs> I did not notice. And maybe there isn't one, but it feels like there is a massive age gap between the father and the mother. <laughs> Yeah, like the that didn't bother like me, be, but I feel, I know what you're well, saying. I can see it. It didn't bother me. It's just something I didn't notice when I was a kid. And when I rewatched this as an adult, I was like, are they like 10 years apart? And that's that's a thing. Like, I do remember like teenage me watching this thinking the mom was very attractive. 
probably because mm-hmm. she's wearing basically booty shorts at the beginning. But I, I, think, I oh yeah, the the I, and the end scene where she's wearing just panties. <laughs> yeah, I, it was probably like five years ago or something. But something clicked in me where I was like, "That's weird." Like, and yeah. that too. It's like you know, their oldest daughter's like sixteen, and they even say the 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 mother's age is like. 32 or something and i was doing the math in my head and i was like when did she have that daughter then yeah (laughs) when she was 16 (laughs) yeah right which i mean i guess technically it would have been in the 70s and that wasn't as weird as it is nowadays but like i don't know that that was something that was weird but now now you got me curious what what is irresponsible about them before the haunting before the haunting okay so one of the first big things and i know you're probably gonna want to like slap my hand for this but there's something I'm like, I'm sorry, when you have a house full of children, one of y'all has to stay sober. So y'all sitting in your bedroom, <laughs> getting high was a big turnoff for me as for you as people. I was like, seriously, one of you, please stay sober. OK, um, it was bedtime. That was something I didn't notice as a kid that I noticed, as a, which is weird that I didn't notice that as a kid. I think it's because I, as a kid, I'm guessing maybe I just thought that it was a cigarette or something. I do not know how I didn't notice that, but that was something like as a teenager, I was like, wait, they were smoking a joint. What? I was, well, I was, it feel, it felt weird and out of place to me though. Also in the movie. I don't know why. No, I actually kind of agree. Make it, especially since they show that the the father's like a big Reagan guy. I was like, but he's smoking weed, Mr. Hypocrite. Like, it's I don't know. I I disagree. If it was in the middle of the day, I would agree with you that it's it, but since everyone was in bed, it's like eh, whatever, like the kids the kids are in bed. But I know what you mean, cause partly cuz I remember being shocked when I saw it when I was older and being like, "Wait, they they're smoking a joint? I don't remember this." <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, kind of reminds you like in the 70s, it, it's when, you know, weed was starting to be talked it talked about on on a mainstream level. Um, it seems like, it seems like, well, no, not accepted. I said talked about. There's a difference. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. It definitely, I mean, it was, yeah, the 60s, it was like, and that's the thing, too. These parents would have been like, you know, in their 20s or teens when, you know, the 60s were happening. So the idea right. of them wanting to is not, again, it's like rewatching it this time. I think I noticed it last time, too. But yeah, he's reading like Reagan's yeah, the book. Reagan and I'm book. just like, Really, buddy? Like the just say no to drugs, Reagan. But you're having <laughs> right. a, you're ha- you're getting stoned with your wife. Okay. <laughs> well, there was that because like if I remember, if, if you've seen Nine to Five, right, with um, with Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. I have not. Okay, uh, maybe a future thing. But like, there's a scene in yeah. it. So that's that's just that's just like a workplace comedy. And then there's this random scene in it where all the characters decide to get high together, and I'm just like why what was the purpose of that scene and so you well, to me it, it's kind of like in this scene too i'm like this just comes out of, i'm like oh is this gonna come back again like maybe this is like some vice or something because you know i'd never seen this movie before so it was just kind of just it was kind of just a weird thing and then the weird thing is, is the kids are aware of it because if you know if you remember when they bury the bird she says he doesn't like the smell of this box and that's the box she keeps her marijuana in. <laughs> oh i actually didn't catch that um one thing I will say that I don't know if you picked up on this is like this isn't me being ooh I'm smart. This is like uh-huh. something that people have talked about. One thing that kind of goes in with the big twist ending with this is this film is very critical, and this kind of goes with Toby Hooper too because 
again, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, outside of what it is, it's very critical of a lot of political institutions in America. Like mm-hmm. the fact that the the family used to work at the meat industry, but then they lost their job. And so like, anyway, if we review that movie, I'll get into that. But one thing uh, that he does kind of carry over into this, which I'm not sure if it was Spielberg's idea or if it was Toby Hooper's, but this movie is definitely very openly critical about suburbia and kind of, you know, that aspect of the American dream, you know? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I, and that's where I kind of think the smoking weed and reading the Reagan thing is not accidental. I think he's kind of, especially with it being early in the movie, I think he's kind of trying to show that the, the father is sort of going down the same path as his boss, you know, like he's just this hypocritical potentially, you know, like obviously he has a conscience by the end of the movie, but it's like he's kind of the best salesman. And right. He, as the boss shows, you know, like anything to make a profit and stuff. And I kind of feel like that ties in with that, you know, like the idea of like smoking a joint in bed while reading and, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, book. I mean, that wasn't the only thing, but like that one, I was just like, seriously, you're not going to. And then especially because also that night the kids happen to come. The kids are terrified of the storm. And they know that at least their son is scared of storms or whatever. And I don't know. Something about that whole sequence just bugged me. They ended up coming there anyway. But then later, I think the next day, this isn't particularly the parents' fault, but I was just calling, this scene's kind of just gross, even by back then. Oh, I know what scene you're going to talk about. I thought I actually forgot about it. I'm sure I've noticed it in past viewings, but it's about the daughter and the construction workers, right? Right? It's like she's an actual child. Like, and then... yeah. It, it's like it, it wasn't like she was like some pretty like 25 she was an actual child and they still kept it in there for comedy i mean i know the whole thing it's a different time that was weird to me but then the mom sees them essentially they didn't come into the house but he's like going into her like window and taking their stuff and i'm like i'm just like look if that if that had been my mom and this person she would have thrown them out no i would not feel safe with these people around my children to me that- i agree i like i I kind of think it's like a time thing. It's gross. I agree with you. Um, One thing I kind of picked up on watching it was like, I feel like they're, it doesn't make it okay, but I I know like they're not, I don't think they're contractors. I think they're like neighborhood friends, like probably getting paid to do it as like a favor because they all know them, you know, like, Oh, Mrs. I love your coffee and whatever. If, if anything, that actually makes it worse because yeah. it's like you know the daughter. But I feel like, again, like you could do this with like sitcoms from the 70s and stuff where people do weird shit that would not fly nowadays. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like it, it is one of those. It, I, it, I don't think it ruins the movie, but I know what you mean. And I also thought it was weird the mom didn't do anything about it. Right. She's just but like, OK, let like me when, just close the blinds. Doesn't even close the window. She just closes the blinds. Like, girl, oh, well, come on. I meant... I meant with the daughter, but the reason oh, that too, the yeah. reason I don't think she did was because the daughter like flipped them off and That's then the true mom too. like laughs at it or whatever. Like, I don't know. It doesn't get to the point. And then there's kind of at the end of the movie when it's like, oh, we're going to meet at the holiday Inn, and the daughter's like, oh, that place. So there's like kind of a joke in there like, oh, she's been going to the motel with boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, which and- which uh, there's something again, other things about this. That I feel like we're a Toby Hooper thing. I I think the political stuff, I think uh, also some of the, the male gazy stuff, like the mom wearing hot pants. Yeah. 
because uh, there's a lot of that in like Texas Chainsaw. And I need to see more of his like later movies, but right. I, there's some things like that, like that joke, for instance. I feel like that was probably more of a Toby Hooper joke yeah. than a Spielberg joke. <laughs> um, and then the last thing is, oh my god, the amount of times they leave their kids alone while the haunting is going on. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like the first time when that one kid is taken out of the window by the tree, right? They leave, essentially, their baby alone in the house. I'm like, grab the child, take them with you. you know, but of course they can't because, you know, no plot. But but then after that, the amount of times they leave him alone or they leave her alone or the fact that they've just gone through this terrifying experience where they had to bring the daughter back from the other side and they just decide, yeah, should be fine. Let's just sleep. In- I mean, I know they said it was clean, but I, who would really feel that comfortable well, that, or or I will at least say that. the dad was like no i don't want the kids sleeping here tonight and the mom's like oh yeah okay see, that's you know, true well. he just well because he's like and so th- so there was that and i'm just like oh my god have we learned nothing from the last nine times because like I, I i i watch a lot of um or i've watched a lot of those uh those that docuseries it used to be on discovery i don't know what happened now it's called a haunting and anytime the yes, stuff i i like that show too Anytime the stuff got bad with the family, they'd always move everybody into like one room. And I'm like, why were we not doing that late? Or like later in the like, I to me would have made more sense if they stayed there, but they all kind of slept in one room together. I don't know. Technically, they did do that during the investigation. That is part of it is part of it is plot convenience. It's like the old don't run into the shed kind of thing. Like, it's just a horror movie trope of people not doing things. I will also say that this family, I don't think they were. I think they were a little too shell shocked by a tree trying to eat their son. That is to, true. Like, think logic. Like if that happened to me, I probably, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like if that happens, you're not going to think logically. You're just going to run outside in the rain and like. Right. And that's the other kind of funny thing about this movie is how over the top the haunting is. Like again, compared to The Exorcist, a lot of things are really subdued in that movie. Yeah. This movie is full-on wacky haunted house stuff it's not you know it's scary but it's also you know a tree is eating a kid a clown doll's attacking a kid a girl gets trapped in a t- like it is so over the top mm-hmm. that it's it's kind of absurd and yeah like, to the point where like you really do kind of it's hard to even criticize the family because it's you know like especially when they go and ask for help from the investigators it's like what do you and in fact that is one of the best scenes in the movie is when the investigators are like talking about oh we've seen some crazy things you know oh they open the door this toy car moved (laughs) 25 feet i've got a time lapse uh video of it 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 took took seven hours hours. and then the the dad's just like "Uh uh-huh and then he opens the door and just like (laughs) madness that's great. Okay. So I actually do kind of like, though, because I was expecting that to be a thing where the paranormal investigators just like take off. Yeah, no, no, we're not dealing with this. But I do kind of like these stayed and helped. Um, I kind of I, I like situations like I don't know. I, I've always kind of liked that. Well, situation. and I also I like the different character because there's the the lead investigator who's like a middle aged woman. She's very spiritual. She knows a lot. You know, she's the one who knows the the medium and stuff. And she's kind of the, you know, most uh, seasoned veteran of everything. Then you've right. got the uh, African-American gentleman who's kind of more of the tech guy. Right he's, right. he's very he's a lot more courageous, but he's also like into the tech 
part of it. And you've got the very nerdy, cowardly jerk who thinks the whole thing is staged up until he peels his face off. And then right. he never comes back after that night. <laughs> um, and he's the one who's just kind of like, uh, there's probably like a, a, you know, a recording device hidden somewhere for the girl's voice or whatever. Yeah. You know, and soon. And of course, he's the one that gets the most brutal <laughs> haunting and then yeah oh he won't be returning but that was kind of neat like they all have different like characteristics and stuff and uh but yeah like i i figured you would like that aspect of it too that it had kind of again this is more of an adventure movie it doesn't really like you know getting the nitty-gritty stuff of paranormal investigations but it has that aspect of it where it's like oh let's turn to science first and then when science all it can really do is just record the things happening yeah. That's when they bring in the other character. So one of the things that's bugged me since I've watched it was I just have too many questions, you know, at the end of the movie. And, you know, usually, you know, that's normal. In, and I get it's like because I tend to like paranormal horror. Um, you know, there's usually at least some unanswered questions. But for me, there was like too many unanswered questions. What are some of the questions? So my, fir- my first one is one, what triggered the haunting Two, why now? Three, if they again, if they've been there for ten years, why now? Uh, four, why did she think the house was clean? Five, how did they find the psychological research place at the at the university? Because they even say, "What do I do? Go to the phone book and look up strange disturbances." Six, what is? I want to know what I want to know. I want to know more about why only this house? Because it's supposing entire neighbors. Why is it only this house? Um, I want to know more about the credentials of the, uh, Tana Gina, I think is her name. There was just, there was just a lot of stuff that I was just like, and then my other one is, my my other one is why, why is the, why does the haunting, um, escalate and deescalate? That's not normal. Like it, cause it starts from basically nothing to suddenly we have trees eating people and then it goes back down to just being lights and sounds and everything. And until the end, we, you know, when the house tries to eat them again, I've got, okay. So first off, I feel like a lot of these concerns kind of come from the fact. And if any of you, I don't think we've ever really talked about this, but one thing about sweet tea, ladies and gentlemen, is that <laughs> you, you actually in like, you dig this stuff in real life. You really yes. like, like paranormal investigations and stuff. Yeah. So like, I like, feel bitch, it's like, a movie. <laughs> well, so not just it's a movie, it's an adventure movie, you know, right. like again, going back to like Indiana Jones, like when they're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, they don't explain, you know, like, oh, it was, you know, like they, they assume, you know, like you've probably been to a Bible class, you know what the Ark of the Covenant is. Right, right. Yeah. You know, like they don't go into the, you know, it's, it goes from, we know something's here to you know, the, the bit of like the map with the airplane flying, that's kind of the same thing with them going to the, uh, investigation investigators. It's like, obviously there's probably a university somewhere, paranormal studies, especially at this time, like was not that crazy, like to find someone doing something at a university. Like there right. are actual places that study that sort of thing. So I feel like you're just supposed to kind of connect the dots with some things. And there's even some fan theory, like uh, the most prominent one with why now is they're building a pool. They're excavating the dead bodies. Um, So that's why now. And in fact, if you think about it, what is the day right before all the shit hits the fan? It's right when those 
creepy neighbors are bulldozing their backyard. So that's kind of the expected fan explanation as to why their house, why right then uh-huh. already, you know, the the disrespect okay. of not moving the bodies. But mm-hmm. they were the only family that was digging the bodies up, obviously not intentionally. Yeah. But, you know, you're disturbing the dead. So that's why their house and right then, at least, you know, that's the understanded fan theory. And I think you're kind of supposed to connect those dots. Um, and yeah, a lot of it also. And and then uh, I <laughs> I knew this would eventually come up. But <laughs> so so this is a franchise or it attempted to be a franchise. And I can tell you I've seen all three. And I feel like I maybe we'll review them on the show, but I feel like in your own personal time, watch Poltergeist two and three, because you'll see why having all of the answers kind of ruins it. Cause they do sort of explain the entity that was trying to keep Carol Ann. It turns out like, it's not the beast. It's not the devil. It's like a, a particular creepy ghost. Um, okay. And it's like, it, it's one of those things where it's like the more you explain it, the less interesting it gets. You know what I okay, mean? Okay, I see what you mean. So like kind of like mystery. Ha- well, because kind of like having these, because I do know that this was intended at least from Spielberg's angle to be a one-off. Um, yes. And so I guess what what you're trying to say is having these unanswered questions is kind of what kept it creepy. Again, yeah, exactly. It's okay. kind of like again, like going back to Indiana Jones and the Nazi face melting. It's kind of like if after that happened, they went into this explanation of why you know it's like it happened you know um we don't necessarily you know frankly like most the uh need to know stuff is explained by the spiritual medium you know and it's very vague like oh there's a light and carol ann gives off a light and the ghosts want to follow her light and they're distracted by the light of you know the afterlife and there's this evil you know it's like that's all we really need to know you know, if you really want to take, there are movies where they take the uh, the investigative angle more seriously, but those are different movies. Again, like this is even outside of like horror, quote unquote. This right. is another one of Spielberg's like family adventure movies, like Indiana Jones, or you know, not Spielberg but Lucas, like Star Wars or something. Like this is it's a it's it's a spooky themed adventure movie more or less you know with some elements of paranormal investigation exorcism but more in a general sense for a more consumer friendly market you know yeah like everyone knows about people exercising ghosts from the house not everyone is going to be like but how does it work you know what i mean and that's that's kind of this was more for like broad appeal than anything right so that makes sense i mean i guess i can now i i I do want to rewatch this movie because if nothing more but then because the effects were amazing um yeah i actually i actually argued with my mom on this we watched it together i actually think that the effects look better in this than in et she disagrees so there are some things that are shocking, like that it came out in 1982. Like, for instance, the bit where she's trying to save her kids at the very end of the movie from getting sucked back into the the gullet, whatever you want to call it, the, mm-hmm. the hole in their wall. And that ghost monster appears. And I'm still amazed that that kid, like that must have blown people's minds in 1982. Right. Oh, that yeah. looks like as good as like CGI today. 
and it wasn't even cgi it was like trick photography and it's like you know and probably that thing was like a puppet that they made look right. ghostly or whatever and it's like that looks so good um so you know not everything is aged perfectly but there yeah. are some effects in this that are just like in fact actually that was something i was kind of thinking about too another spielberg movie this reminds me a little bit of is close encounters mm-hmm because that that had a lot of really mind blowing like alien effects and there is a the, connection. You know, the, there is a connection well, I, besides I, Spielberg. The, the, <laughs> well, the scene the scene that I'm thinking of that really reminds me of Close Encounters is the bit with the orbs where they're watching back and it's all these like dead people. Oh and they're yeah, like, where, are, where are they coming from and stuff? That reminds me of Close Encounters. I think partly because it's a much as creepy as it is, it's a much more like awe inspiring kind of scene. Yeah. It Actually, reminds me of like yeah, the that's ending pretty, of that movie. Yeah, there was something emotional, but like that scene wasn't scary. It was more like you're just transfixed by yeah. what's happening. So exactly. In addition to viewing this movie, um, I also watched a full length documentary about the trilogy. Uh, oh God, yeah, dude. Well, I I figured you were gonna do your research, but I'm sure like I know one thing you're gonna talk about. But this movie is kind of one of those. There are three horror movies I can think of off the top of my head that are quote unquote cursed. Yeah. One of them's The Exorcist. One of them is, oh, I was just thinking of this earlier today. What was, oh, uh, The Omen. Mm -hmm. And one of them is this. Yeah. And this one has a, you know, like, I honestly think this is the most cursed because there were actual, you know, The Omen did have a death. Mm -hmm. This had two deaths. Well, uh, well, technically, I I think four total. Uh, yeah. Um, well, so, the one. So we'll. I, you're gonna bring it up. So so <laughs> before I go with the curse, um, because I watched I watched this documentary. Um, it was actually put out in 2002, back when E still did stuff related to the entertainment industry. Um, it which was, explains the editing of the video you showed. That's me. Not, that <laughs> is like, that is not from that documentary. But this is a no. It's one. from it's fr- it's from something else. But it definitely looked like it was from the early two thousands with right. its ADHD editing. It's like <laughs> <laughs> I, every five I seconds. No, yeah, just the quick cutting and the oh, Jesus. Anyway, but yeah, continue. <laughs> this so this so I watched a documentary. It was the E True Hollywood story on the Poltergeist curse. But they that was basically the idea behind it. But they spend most of the time just talking about how the movies were made. Um, so one of the things, this is actually derived from a script, um, that came about because, um, Spielberg didn't want to do, uh, I think it was Universal, I think, I think that's who did, uh, Close Encounters, they wanted a sequel to Close Encounters, he didn't want to do one, so he came up with this idea for a, for a, a horror film called, um, Night Watchers. So actually it was called, originally it was called Watch the Night Skies. Um, and then it became, I think, Night Watchers. Basically the idea was, is it was a story about an isolated farmhouse and this family it was supposed to be kind of a wholesome family and they're under attack from evil entities. Um, he actually had a script written. He did a treatment. He had a script written by the guy who did the parody of Jaws called Piranha, which <laughs> I, I don't know why he hired that guy to do the script. They ended up parting ways. I can see why, because I think the aliens' names were like... I remember one of the aliens' names was Squirt, and I'm like, seriously? It's like, okay. <laughs> anyway, so that did make it... But he took a lot of the ideas from that, and he divided them, and, and they basically ended up becoming E.T., and uh, Poltergeist. So Poltergeist, obviously, the main idea about a family, a, fa- uh, a wholesome family being under attack, uh, came from this. 
And supposedly this was based on a case of poltergeist activity from 1958 um, in Long Island, I believe. It's If you want to read more about it later, it's called The Herman Haunting. It's not as dramatic as this, though. Uh, but still kind of weird. And that's what this movie was based on? Yeah, that or that's maybe where he got the idea to Some I will I will interject to just say cuz I I haven't watched whatever documentary you've watched, but I've over the years like I love watching like behind the scenes stuff and a good amount, not everything, and I do believe what you're saying that he got some ideas from that haunting, but some of the scares were actually from Spielberg's childhood. Yes. The tree, for instance, was something that he was really afraid of in one of his houses when he was a kid. Yes. And same thing with the clown doll. Like, yes. so those two things particularly were just like from Spielberg being afraid of them as a kid. Right. Uh, so I think this case was more about the idea of what poltergeists can do and how they can terrify. And then, in this documentary, they actually interviewed his sister. I think her name is Sue, if I remember correctly. And she shared that. She's like, yeah, there was this tree outside that freaked him out. It would scratch the window during storms. That's what happens in this. And she, she said when she saw the movie and they see the, the you know, the hands come through and grabbing him. I'm like, okay, now I understand what he was afraid was going to happen. <laughs> she talked about that and she talked about how he was scared of clowns. Uh, but uh, he did... So he ended up hiring, he met with the writers who ended up writing the movie with him because they were the, they were going to pitch him a project and he ended up talking about how he was working on kind of like a paranormal thing and they called him up later and said, hey, we'd rather work on the paranormal script with you <laughs> than what we were pitching. And they ended up getting the job. But yeah, he wanted realism with it. And actually, one of the things I do respect about this movie is it does take the study of it kind of seriously in the film. It's not kind of a joke, really. And so like he's like he said he wanted the writers to wanted them to meet with mediums, sidekicks, ghost hunters to kind of get a feel for, you know, what their craft was. And he and they said actually they the writers came back to him one one with after one meeting and they were like, "Okay, so we want this movie to stand out. So how about we need people, we need people to die." And he was like, "Well, how many?" They they were like, "Okay, the whole family." <laughs> and Spielberg was like, mm, no. <laughs> so yeah. they talk it back and forth and eventually get it down to they were just going to have the little girl die. Well, that was what they agreed upon. They went back and rewrote it and that ended up not happening. But I love that they were just like, we want ever the whole family has to die. Um, Drew Barrymore auditioned for the role of, Car- of Carol Ann. And Spielberg said, you're not right for this movie, but I think you're right for E.T. So that's how E.T. That's how Drew Barrymore got cast in E.T. was because she tried out for this movie, and the girl that she ended up picking that he ended, uh, he ended up picking for Heather O'Rourke, he discovered her in the um, the MGM uh, cafeteria or the what is it the commissary. She was sitting there waiting for her mom, and he came over to her. I guess she had the right look or whatever, and he talked to her. And she says, "My name's Heather O'Rourke, but I can't talk to you because you're a stranger." <laughs> <laughs> um and so he sat with her and waited for her mom to get back and they talked about it and they you know, they worked it all and i think that's kind of hilarious so et was in pre-production while they were working on this movie and then poltergeist was being pitched and thought of and written everything while he was working on raiders but they people talked about how um this was a grueling production the wga went on strike during the filming of this movie so the writers of the movie would have to pick it outside mgm where where the movie they wrote was being filmed so um they said they talked about the actors have talked about this is a very grueling 
production to work on. Like I said, um, the WGA went on strike. The writers had to strike their own movie. Um, and they said that some of them, particularly Joe Beth Williams and uh, Dominique Dunn, had some paranormal experiences um, at their own homes while they were filming it. You know, take that with what you will. But this is my favorite, you know, on the set uh, story. So Joe Beth Williams, at the end of the movie, if you remember, she has to go. She Or was it that scene? Yeah, she falls into the pit with and that with all the skeletons washing up now. And so she's yes. down there. Um, and so she said that was filmed in that was filmed inside uh, a tank at MGM. Um they had built this thing inside a tank and then they had these giant, like huge lights that were saying they would shine down to light it and everything. And she said she had this, like um, this strange fear of like the light falling into this water pit and then her being electrocuted. So she's not an unreasonable fear. <laughs> so she said what, it, what ended up happening is Steven Spielberg got waiter pants and he went into the water and he would stand in the water with her while she filmed her scenes off screen and basically, he said he told her that way. Basically, he wanted him to trust what they knew what they were doing. She said that way, if it falls in and electrocutes you, it'll electrocute me too. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of, I kind of lost. I, I kind of uh, laughed about that. I thought that was pretty funny and kind of actually a charming thing to do. Yeah, no, he's he's good, man. He's he's. You can say what you want about Spielberg, but one thing is that he's definitely a people person. Yeah. And he's very, I think that's one of his strengths as a director. Cause I mean, you know, we talked about, I've talked about this, how like, you know, people say like, Oh, the director's job is like the whole film. And I'm like, not really. It's mostly dealing with the actors unless you're like a famous director. Right. But that's kind of what he's best at is like, you know, talking to people and like being with the actors. So that I'm not surprised. That's the first time I've heard that story, but that, that sounds about right up. So that's one of the alley. One of the things I liked about this documentary is it was literally just talking, even though it was an E true Hollywood story, it was talking with literally the people that were there. So they were sharing their stories. Well, the ones that are still alive, we're getting to the curse. We're almost there. I promise. I just found a whole bunch of, <laughs> I found out a whole bunch nah, of stuff dude, about you're, this, you're bringing, money, this movie. You're bringing the fun facts. This is fine. I, uh, <laughs> this is, this is where you learn lots of cool new trivia bits about the movie. This is what I usually do, but you're, you're bringing the heat this time and I appreciate it. <laughs> so now we, I wanted to talk about Toby Hooper and there's all, like you've talked about, there's this whole question among the general public, not among you know movie people or whatever, or maybe some of them, who was really directing this project? So this project, the reason Steven Spielberg didn't direct this project to begin with is because he wanted this movie made, um, but he, Universal wouldn't make it. And Universe, but he was under contract with Universal that he couldn't direct anywhere else. MGM picked it up, but he couldn't direct it. So he got around it by producing it. But Gotcha. And that's like, I again, I know he had, I would argue he had full creative control over the narrative. Like the story, I think, is all him. Mm -hmm. The one thing, and I, I saw this in like a making of documentary or whatever. And again, no one talks about this. He handpicked Toby Hooper because he liked the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So right. like it was his like he he sought Toby Hooper out. So like he wouldn't have done that if he didn't respect him as a filmmaker. So, so again, like I, I do think this has Spielberg's signature all over it. Yeah. But I don't think that like he ghost directed it. I feel like that's taking it a bit far. I think he was 
very, very hands-on with it. Like, even that story you just told, he was on set a lot of the time. Right. But, you know, he, he wasn't, like, you know, forcing everyone to, like, again, he wasn't telling Toby Hooper what to do. Well, so, there's some tea. Ooh. So, some tea. Um, so, they talked with, and I'm trying to, I hope I did I write his name down. Uh, and I didn't write his Craig and I did not write his last name now. Great. Uh, so they interviewed, you know, some of the people who worked in the special effects. Um, and they also interviewed some of the cast. Now, one of the cast members, and I don't remember who said it, but they said there was a couple times, you know, Toby Hooper would have a scene set up, have a scene lit and Spielberg would come in and be like, no, and change it. Um, that's disappointing (laughs) there was um, that wouldn't happen all the time that happened a few times there was a special effects uh, guy his name was Craig and I don't remember what his last name was so he talked in particular there's two major instances that he talked about Um, he talked about the steak scene so in the original script the steak was described as cancerous looking Um, so with that in mind he met with Toby Hooper they talked about it, what he wanted. So the makeup, I think he was a special effects makeup guy, I think is who it was. So he came in, brought in a prototype and said, okay, this is what, this is, this is what I'm thinking. How does this look? And Toby Hooper was like, yes, perfect. Thanks. And then later that same day, Steven saw it and was like, yeah, I don't think so. No, this isn't the steak. Um, so that guy was a little miffed because, you know, he'd taken it in one entire direction that he had discussed with the director and then, you know, he put all this time and money into it and then it basically had to go into the trash. Um, so he said after that, he always made sure not only to run everything through Toby Hooper, but then also to run it through to run it through Steven first and then run it through Toby, um, which that's disappointing. That's disappointing. But at least I uh, don't know. It's it, again, I'm not surprised. But again, like I it. it I'd love to sit down with Toby Hooper and get his opinion. Yeah, that again, was like, he asked... wasn't interviewed in this documentary, so I don't know if that's telling or if he just doesn't do interviews. Do you know what I mean? Or, or maybe like that's one of those things. I don't think he's passed away. I think he's still around. So I don't know. That is, it's one. He's one of those directors I know about him, but I can't really even put a face to him, <laughs> which is funny. But it it's funny exist. because when Spielberg is interviewed about this movie, he's always like, "Oh no, Toby had like, you know." It's one of those things where like he was kind of the the hot shit at the time, so maybe he was just kind of getting used to calling the shots, right? Um, but again, I feel like it's a little uncharitable to say that like Toby Hooper basically didn't do anything. Uh, but I'm not surprised if Spielberg was a little bit uh, controlling. Yeah. <laughs> um, they also said that Steven Spielberg actually has a cameo in this movie. Um, so do you remember the scene that scared you as a kid? Describe that scene for me. Okay, and I think I know what you're getting. I think I'm remembering this tidbit from probably something I saw forever ago. But um, so there's a scene where one of the paranormal investigators is going to get a snack. Uh, He gets some steak and a chicken leg out of the fridge. And right before his eyes, they turn rancid and covered in, you know, like bugs and whatever. The steak's cancerous, as the script said. So he goes to like wash his mouth out in uh, the bathroom and as he's looking at himself in the mirror, like the light turns into like a heat light and his face is like melting off and he just starts peeling it off until there's like a skull there. 
Now, what I'm guessing you're going to say is that at one point, the uh, the person peeling the face off is Spielberg under all the makeup. So those are his arms. Okay. Be- and the guy who did the makeup said that's Steven Spielberg's arms because it was such a long process and he didn't want there to be, basically he didn't want to get to the end and have him be like, I don't like the way who pulled those off like that. That looks stupid. <laughs> so basically they had him do it. So he couldn't complain about it. Uh, but that's actually funny and kind of petty. And I kind of love it because it's like, Oh, I don't like how that looks. Well, you're the one who did it. <laughs> right. So because, Blame yourself. so th- because there's all these things, I mean, now, um, the, the main cast has said, no, Toby Hooper was definitely the director he was very nice. He, you know, it was probably difficult for him because, like, I talked about those scenes where he would set up a scene and have it lit and everything, and Stephen would be like, no. But they said, you know, he was the director. He was the one that was, you know, talking to us about our, you know, our lines, motivations, all that fun stuff. So he was the director of the film. Um, so that is the cast. So because it's the cast talking and it's, like, 30 years later and there's nothing, I'm like, I, I'm willing to believe them. I'm like, yeah, like, I think it's basically what you said. He was kind of just kind of used to having control over everything. It is something that it is kind of a story and an idea that he had conceived. So he maybe he still felt viewed it as his baby or basically. And, you know, he did stuff. But I do still think uh, that he was in control. In fact, um, when the press started to come out about the movie being released, Hooper was very upset because all these papers would run it as they, they, they would talk about it the steven spielberg production poltergeist and like they would either not mention toby hooper or have toby hooper you know way down on the list which i'm like it's, you, I'm it like, still I'm like, continues to this day man it's so funny like people will often forget again like even like horror fans often forget that he directed this and it's funny because watching this again, it's like a Toby Hooper film. It's like, <laughs> like I mean, says it right there in the opening credits. It's I like, mean, anyway. I, you can't really blame the press, though, because literally the first thing that it says on the screen is a Steven Spielberg production. Uh, yeah. But I understand that. And I thought Spielberg understood his frustration. So he ended up taking out a full page ad in Variety with a personal letter to everybody saying, listen, this is Toby Hooper's film. This is not my film. And that seemed to kind of fix things and kind of smooth things over with Toby Hooper. But yeah, well, and I mean, it's also like, again, like with him on the set, that makes sense uh, with him being controlling. I'm sure it was kind of adding insult to injury. Right, right. But it's like it's how the media does things, man. Like they'll they'll take something and just spin it a certain way. Like, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where uh if someone more famous than the filmmaker is attached to the film, it becomes about the famous person just because they need to, you know, get people to read the story. Right. Right. No, I, know, um, no I get you, but I still kind of feel bad no, for no, Toby no. Hooper and all this. I'm like, everyone on. should feel bad for Toby Hooper. If anyone takes anything from this podcast, it should be that Poltergeist was directed by Toby Hooper. <laughs> Cause again, uh, as I said, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't really Again, like even even like seasoned horror fans will often forget that he did this movie. Right. Be, exactly. And so because, you know, it's even even uh, what I'm trying to say, even not legacy, but like historically now people kind of go back. Oh, that that's Steven Spielberg movie. And, you know, it really yeah. you know, wasn't like if you think about it, it's like me saying memoirs of a geisha was a Steven Spielberg movie just because he produced well- it. 
Uh, I actually didn't even know he produced that one. But yeah, like there were other movies that Amblin did in the 80s that Spielberg did not direct that feel like when it, like I can't think of any right now. But this isn't the Toby Hooper is not the only casualty to this phenomenon because right. there were other films that were directed by other people that felt like Spielberg movies because he produced them and probably also had quite a bit of like creative control so now let's segue into what you've been waiting for the curse the poltergeist curse okay so for all those of you who don't know what the poltergeist curse is or supposedly is it's essentially the idea that uh for whatever reason there is something uh un i don't want to say unholy because i mean basically there's something evil associated with the film and that many prominent cast members have died there was even in the early days of the internet, the being passed around that all the prim, all the primary cast members of the film had died, which is you know just objectively untrue. Um, so basically, uh, what 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 started what got this all started off is a few months after the movie came out, nineteen eighty two, like late, I think it was November nineteen eighty two. Could be wrong. Don't quote me here. Dominique Dunn, who played Dana in the movie, the teenage girl. Um, was essentially beaten to near death by her abusive ex-boyfriend, John Sweeney, who was weird. Like, he actually, he was a chef, but he would, like, I I think they said at one point he had carved a chocolate mask in the likeness of her face and brought it to her, which is so odd. Um... And basically, they he came over one time when she was re- running lines with an actor friend of hers, who I believe his name was M- Michael Packer, I believe his name was. And she came over, she went outside to talk to him, they started yelling. And this is what's hilarious to me about you talking about putting on the Poltergeist soundtrack and it being so soothing. To drown out the noise of them yelling, Michael Packer put on the Poltergeist soundtrack. <laughs> Just like, dude, what is wrong with you? Um, eventually the noise got too loud. He went outside and basically he had essentially choked and beaten her into a comatics, into a coma state. And she died four days later after being in a coma because of the tragic, because of, because of her tragic demise, you know, they, uh, this would start the idea of the poltergeist curse, that it was cursed. Um, and there are, there are four, uh, victims that are, relegated to this curse one of the first ones dominic dunn who we just discussed the next is julian beck who played kane in the second one which i don't really think belongs there and i'll tell you why in a second yeah i don't honestly i'll let you finish i don't think that's like my my catchphrase this episode i'm gonna let you finish i'm gonna let you finish no, but like <laughs> it's i know yeah the the kane in the second one he's the character by the way i was talking about where i'm like oh they explained the entity that was keeping caroline yeah. At that point, it, like, first off, the sequels. I encourage you to watch them because of how weird they are. Like, well, the I, third I one seems binged. the most interesting to me. The third one is the most interesting because it feels like it's a different franchise. Like, it feels like it, it. If you showed it to someone, I don't think they'd know it was a poltergeist movie. It's so freaking weird. The second one feels more like. It just, they're all wrong. You know what I mean? Like, they feel <laughs> off. Like, yeah. there's something weird about them. Like, in a way where, especially in the 80s, like, horror sequels were all, you know, Halloween, Friday the 13th. Like, I, I can't say, like, with any of those big slasher franchises, like, I could go to, like, Friday the 13th 4 or 
Nightmare on Elm Street 11 3 or 4 <laughs> yeah and it's like they don't feel like a different fran- like right. they might not be as good as the first one but they feel cohesive the Poltergeist sequels feel like different movies each one like yeah. the second one felt like they were trying to be like the first one but just everything's weird like it gets into like there's like an Indian Native American shaman, like shaman and yeah, the the entity that apparently was the beast in this movie was like a creepy pedophile priest that was like into Carol Ann. And then like, he's still God. the bad guy in the third movie, but like it takes place in a skyscraper in the, like New York. The John Hancock is, tower in Chicago. It's so weird. I can't even like, honestly, as I said, I encourage you, maybe we'll review them in the future, but if, if you're interested, I encourage you to watch them just because it is, they're bonkers. It was what it sounds it's like. It's the most bizarre franchise out of all the horror fa- franchises. And to any of you listening too, like I encourage you watch all three of them back to back, have a marathon because it is a trip. It is a true rabbit hole of weird. Like what were they thinking? Kind is of it, like, is it like, as is it like as unsettling as like when you just finished watching the masterpiece that is the exorcist and you watch the trailer for the exorcist two and you're like, what the hell is this? And it like, it's like a, and the whole trailer is like played over like a funky dance beat. And you're like, what's going on here? Yeah, actually, The Exorcist, the the reason I wouldn't call The Exorcist franchise as, as weird as this one is because the third one kind of righted the ship. It's yeah. not exactly, you know, like it's still a good movie. Yeah, I would agree that that one does feel like a different genre of movie. But yeah, like the it's like the difference between Exorcist one and two. Yeah, like that's actually a pretty good comparison, except they did it a third time <laughs> and made it even weirder than the second one. Like well, it is. As I said, I marathoned them. I went to, like, this was back before rental places were extinct. I went to, like, my local place and rented the whole, all three of them and watched them over the weekend. And I was just like, what the hell did we, like, it's so weird. I can't even put words to it. Yeah. That's the real curse. Um, (laughs) The real curse is how bad one, two, and three are. Well, and so Kane's one of the ones that died. I know you're going to get to Carol Ann, uh... I forgot the actress's name, but she's the one that's kind of spooky to me because she just had this underlying heart condition that no one, including her, knew about. And she essentially just like died of like a heart attack or something randomly when she was like 12 years old. That to me is like really spooky. More so like, you know, you sent me because you weren't sure I knew about the murder of the older sister's actress uh but i did know about it but i didn't know all the details and that one wasn't spooky when i heard about it and it wasn't spooky when you sent me the thing because really it just kind of shows like she was just in a shitty situation like it doesn't really feel like a curse it's more of like you know the people nowadays there's much more of a dialogue about like child actors and sort of like problematic people that they get involved with and that's kind of what because she was a child actor like you know she wasn't a big star but she might have if she hadn't been murdered by the guy she might have been one of the big stars in the 90s or like even the 80s like she was on her way to being like you know, well, a, she she'd actually leading lady. She had actually Dominique Dunn had already. Um, I think she'd signed on for a, a television series already that I think they remade in the last few years called V. Um, yeah, she was supposed to be in that. Um, but okay, so getting back to the list, so Julian Beck who played Kane, and then we had Will Sampson who played the shaman, 
Uh, he died again. He died again. It's like a lung, a dual lung and heart surgery. Again, this is why like it's the the other. And I'm sure you probably already have this like the shaman and Kane. Again, it's like it's a different movie. And again, it might as well be a different franchise. Like, I feel like that's a stretch, um, <laughs> especially because like it's again, it's only like a couple of actors. The one detail that I've heard that's actually kind of spooky on top of Carol Ann's actress dying is the fact there was like a gun on set that was constantly getting loaded. I did not hear anything about that. So I can't confirm that. That that was like a thing too. Um, And it did go off. It didn't kill anybody, but like it would keep getting, it was supposed to be like a prop gun for something. I don't know why Uh, there's no gun in the movie, but like there was a gun on set and it kept getting loaded. Well, you know, and, just you know, everyone was like saying they weren't. But, but again, nowadays with the whole rust thing going yeah. on, it's kind of like maybe Ma- someone was just not being responsible. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we had Heather O'Rourke and she died and she died actually during the filming of, of the third one. Uh, she had a bowel obstruction that led to septic shock. Uh, That's which, what it was. Which caused, you know, she had she had two heart attacks in like three days and then they found out she had she'd been having health issues for a long time and no one could figure out what it is and it was so sad because when i was watching the documentary they had her mother and everybody would talk about how great she was they said that you know that she wasn't a complainer you know she did the work and her mom's like well yeah but if maybe she had complained like a normal person did they could have diagnosed her sooner and she could have been saved Um, that's really sad um, so that, um, I added a, I added a fifth on here because when they were filming the third movie, they had the building engineer for the John Hancock tower on set for whatever reason. I forgot why they said he was there, but he just died on set. Like he'd stopped moving and he died on set. So I kind of threw him in there. Um, but they said in the pol- and during Poltergeist two, uh, they said that the, and I don't know the plot, so I'm just going to describe it. They, they called it the cave set. was so dangerous. They said there was stuff falling all the time. There was there was problems with uh, the film. They said that there was some scene that they had to do where somebody was throwing up. And it was some super gruesome scene and very taxing to do. And they filmed it. They wrapped it. They had the shot. And they came back the next way and they found out that the film was was had been blanked. Uh, and they don't know what happened to the film. They had to redo it. They were not happy about that. They were talking about fog, the, the fogging occurring on some of the shots. There was they had a lot of problems with Poltergeist too. So uh, they said William Sampson, who played the shaman, was a shaman in real life, a Native American shaman. Um, so he came in at four in the morning and blessed the set or did whatever to the act. They, the director described it as he exercised the set. Um, they said after that they didn't have any problems. So that was, and then, a, and then the shaman died. <laughs> yeah, and then he died, and then he died shortly after the film was done, and then um, so. This has basically all been tied to. Sounds like the sequels were cursed, which right. I can I can tell you without any ghosts that uh, <laughs> they were cursed. Well, they said people um, have said, and this is true. This has been confirmed that the that the well, not part of it's been confirmed, but you'll see what I mean. Um, that the curse. This is the films are cursed because they used real skeletons in yes in the in yes, the I movie. forgot about that. So how did I, you know, what's funny is I, I forgotten about that the other day when I was watching it, the, like during the big spooky pool scene where, you know, all the bodies are coming out. Yeah. I was thinking, man, 
like good thing those are rubber scalps. <laughs> like I again, I'd heard the fun fact about them being real before. I forgot about it until just now. It's like, oh shit, no, uh, God, how can you do that, man? That that pool set's already pretty gnarly. I wouldn't have been necessarily afraid well, of getting electrocuted, but ugh. here's the thing: they didn't tell anybody. They found out after the fact. <laughs> So they Jeez. said they did it because acquiring real skeletons was cheaper than making rubber ones, which I'm like, I'm sorry. Did the art director or whoever was in charge of getting the props, did they miss the point of the movie? The whole movie, they're experiencing all these problems because it was built on a graveyard. So, yes, I'm, let's just I'm more ups- uh, let's just desecrate I'm more ups- them. I feel bad for who's ever. Whoever's- Go ahead. You go. Okay. <laughs> no, you I go. feel bad for whosoever's grandmother got launched at the car when they're trying to drive away. Like, really? What is wrong I, with you people? I'm more upset with whoever sold them the skeletons. Like, on, on one hand, yeah, that's pretty crappy of the art director. But, you know, when you're MGM's breathing down your neck about sticking to a budget, it's like, I mean, I, again, it kind of... It, especially like people usually like donate their bodies to science for that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. frankly, if hell, maybe if I decide to do that after I die, I'll put a note. Like you may use my, my body for films. (laughs) uh, I would love uh, to be launched in someone's face. (laughs) If you make a poltergeist remake, my skeleton is down, but it better not suck. Um, (laughs) Or else I will curse the film. No, but like that's, that's, that just raises questions. I've heard now my my mind is racing. I feel like I've heard uh, s- stories about like sketchy, you know, like underground kind of like things for like teacher skeletons and stuff. And that's kind of why well, nowadays, I like, mean, that's that... like with molds and stuff. But that really does raise the question again, like who sold the film those who sold it to them? Because that's who I'd be upset with. Like, why I mean, are you doing that? <laughs> that upsets me, but I just still can't get over the irony. It's like, that is the entire point of the movie. <laughs> right? Is This is what happens. You mess, So let's just mess with some dead bodies. I think that's why that's such a famous fun fact, too. Like, again, I, I, I forgot about it uh, this week when I was watching the movie, but I've heard that a bunch of times before. Oh, they were real skeletons, real skeletons. Mm. So th- the irony is not lost on people because that is one of the most like repeated fun facts about the movie because <laughs> it is ironic. Well, uh, well, uh, what I uh, so my question is when Stephen was standing in the water, did he know? <laughs> is he just that okay being around bodies? Maybe there's something we don't know about him. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Who knows? No, uh, honestly, I, I bet he didn't. It makes me want, I feel like maybe the art director is the only one who knew. Who knows? That's actually a good question. Like, uh, makes me wonder, obviously the cast didn't know because they said so, but yeah, that would be a fun question. Like, Hey, did you know about that? Like, <laughs> They, they talked about Poltergeist 3 had the worst problems. They said they was just, there was just a slew of accidents on Poltergeist 3. They talked about how the actress, the actress Zelda Rubenstein, how her mother passed away during... Uh, she found out about it, but they... But basically, essentially what's believed is the moment that she was doing... She was doing promotional photos for, uh, you know, the film. And so... They all came out except for one. One of them has this weird apparition on it. And shortly after this is when she got the phone call that her mother had died. So there's been some talk about that that photo was taken at the moment that her mother died. It's kind of weird. It is, it's kind of one of those weird coincidences that makes you think. Um, and 
there's also the fact that they did um, an explosion in the parking garage at, um, I think I believe it was at the John Hancock Tower in Chicago, which you probably remember from the movie. And so, you know, they had the explosion filmed. They had firemen standing by, you know, to put it out immediately. But they said they that they, they they filmed the scene and then the firemen like took off. Like they were like too scared by the explosion. <laughs> and they kind of just left it in there. And then they found out there was a maintenance worker who was still stuck in the garage and the firemen wouldn't go in go in to get him. So the stunt guy had to go in and get this guy. You know, what's funny is I don't remember a lot about the third one other than it's weird. I didn't even know Zelda Rubenstein was in it. Uh, I figured she, because again, she's not really in the second one. So then the fact they even brought her back for the third one was kind of weird. It's, it's a weird movie. It somehow manages to be really unmemorable, but also like, I'm not surprised there were a lot of accidents. Like it just, it has a, it has a weird vibe. It, it feels off when you're watching it. Yeah. The second, the second one is just a bad sequel. They took the plot in some weird and directions. And they moved it to Arizona. Exactly. <laughs> it, which you can tell, you can immediately tell it's not in the same neighborhood. Um, and then, yeah, it's again, it's such a weird franchise. Like it's, it's, totally a trip to like marathon all three of them because they feel like they're different movies well the last to close off the curse the last documented part of the curse is 1994 which you should remember this maybe you won't because you were still too young um the northridge earthquake um it says that you know it did of the 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 neighborhood was affected by the earthquake but the only house that sustained any damage was the poltergeist house (laughs) Which I'm like, that's just kind of one of those weird, creepy coincidences that you're just like, huh? There are creepy coincidences. Again, I, I I don't think the film is cursed. Probably the franchise, but not the film. Um, and there are some spooky coincidences, but a lot of the stuff that people say, like, ooh, it's a curse. Again, like, with the, with the actress being murdered, it's like, frankly, it had been going on for a while, like, before the movie even started filming. So ooh. it's just kind of an unfortunate no one was looking out for her best interest kind of thing. Right. But I think to the uh, public, it became a curse because all they just saw was this young, bright and upcoming star suddenly just murdered. Like in, Oh, for sure. That's and people why, weren't well, really then, talking. I mean, it's only recently there were even like stalking laws imposed these days. Like yeah. No one really talked about it back then and stuff. So it's, it's also a great way to sell the movie. You know, right. like, oh, my God, it's cursed. You'd better not see it. Maybe you'll get cursed, too. You know, like that right. makes people get their butts in seats. So I'm not surprised. I just I don't know. Uh, some of it is some of it's spooky. Some of it isn't. But what what else did they say? OK, so they also said so I wanted to circle back. Cause I remember I said I was going to say why I don't think Julian Beck should even be on the list or be part of the curse is because he basically had just a whole bunch before he even got involved in the movie, a whole bunch of health problems. And essentially knew he was going to die, like, relatively soon. So, I'm just like, I'm like, that that predates Poltergeist. That's like, that's not part, you can't even claim that's part of the curse. Um, And the last, and the last thing I was going to say about the curse is, this is really sad. Um, I forget, and I forget what his name is, but the guy who directed the third one became close friends with Heather O'Rourke's mother. So, Heather O'Rourke's mother asked him to be a pallbearer. uh, Oh, God. Which, that was, that must have just been, you know, just, just sad. But one fact I want to circle back to um, is, don't know if you know this, but it probably wouldn't surprise you. Uh, when this first made its pass at the MPAA, they 
originally rated it R because this was this predates PG thirteen. Yes, and this is one of the movies like we talked about. Um, did we talk? I don't know if we've talked about any movies yet that like were in that gray area. Like, but this was one of them. Temple of Doom and this movie specifically were kind of what helped create PG thirteen. Right. Because yeah, Temple of Doom's the other big one because it's like so. It's not quite to the point of needing to be rated R, but it's definitely not for kids. You yeah. Know? So it's. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is they talked about, um, you know, nowadays, I think it's hilarious because everybody's clamoring for that R rating. It's like you're not t- your movie's not taken seriously if it's not R. Um, and I mean, I mean, for I, Oscars. Yeah. If you want your movie to make money, PG-13 is where you like sweet spots. All the best high grossing movies are always PG-13. Well, they, uh, they usually say- for like serious, like I wouldn't say artistic, but like the ones that they want to win, like best picture and stuff are usually R rated. Right. Uh, but they, I remember they said, um, that, you know, they didn't want that. They, they didn't want the R rating, which is, you know, you think horror movies, they want it. They didn't want it because they said that was like the kiss of death for a movie because, um, they wanted it to be a summer blockbuster. And the way it becomes a summer blockbuster is that kids go to the movies and see them again and again and again. Um, so kind of goes back to what I was saying, because PG 13 didn't exist. So PG was used to be the sweet spot. And if you think about jaws, jaws should have probably been PG 13, but it didn't exist, but it was PG. Yeah. So I agree. I like, and it kind of goes with what I was saying about this feeling like a family friendly, like I, I think by today's standards, this should be PG 13, but this is a lot of people's first horror movies. This is one of those movies that traumatized a lot of people when they were kids because they watched it because it's PG. Right. But I kind of agree with um, them saying that R would have been bad because frankly, think about it. If this had come out and was rated R, think of the crowd that would have gone to see it. Yeah. Like they probably would have been like, this is baby stuff. Yeah. Like they probably would have thought it was weak. Uh, which is stupid. It's still a good movie, but I, I agree. This is like, again, this is, this is why PG 13 exists for movies like this, where it's like, you want that sweet money making spot where you get families to go. Right. Well, and you know, I don't know if you caught this, but you know, one of my favorite movies, the silence of the lambs, same font yes. of the opening credits of silence of the lambs and the opening credits of poltergeist, same font. I swear. Didn't actually notice that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's a cool detail though. That, that, that's the, the thing. Okay. So I wanted to close out this episode with, uh, something kind of different, but as you said, because this is the month of Halloween, um, and you know, you mentioned that this is kind of the stuff I'm into. So after the movies, the movie is called Poltergeist, which I thought was weird because it didn't really seem like a poltergeist haunting. So ya boy, Went to his reference books on the paranormal because I have those. And I'm going to agree with you, but the reason it was because, you know, I'm not as into it as you, but I know what a poltergeist is. There's no poltergeist in this movie. Like you're you're about to explain what a poltergeist is. But honestly, I think the reason they called the movie that is it just sounded cool. And yeah. It's like there was no other name for you did like that. They needed something to stand out. And if they called it haunted house or ghost or something like it probably wouldn't have stood out as much as calling it you know most average people in 1982 didn't know what the hell a poltergeist was right and so they're probably gonna be like whoa what is that yeah um so 
really quick, listeners. I'm just gonna pull. I went. I went ahead and I went ahead and tabbed my book, which is things I wanted to make sure I mentioned. Um, so there's some discussion about what a poltergeist is. Typically, um, according to parapsychologist William G. Roll, they are parasite uh, poltergeists, unlike a traditional haunting or demonic haunting, which is kind of more what I think was depicted in the movie is usually focused on a per- particular person and they usually occur only in the daytime and there's a reason for that they also talk about the fact that because it's a personal because it's a person-centered phenomenon it's um poltergeists are not noisy ghosts like the german word is poltergeist stands for noisy ghost or noisy spirit i believe it's triggered within the minds and psyches of the living human agents. In other words, what appears to be the handiwork of restless spirit may actually be traced to the uncontrolled psych, psych, psychokinetic energy of living people. This in, in its events they refer to as recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK, for short. And they said most reported cases of poltergeist probably can be accounted for by fraud, hallucination, or purely physical causes. But among modern parapsychologists, RSPK is by far the most widely accepted theory for alleged poltergeist activities that defy simpler explanations. They go on to say that most skeptics refer to this, uh, refer to uh, poltergeist hauntings, they call it the naughty little girl theory, which is basically it's some kid who wants attention, so they do stuff, which is kind of what people think was the case in the Enfield haunting, which is what was depicted in The Conjuring 2. But they also believe that um, that there's another another psychological researcher named Howard Carrington uh, added a biological element to to what a... uh, the poltergeist is writing in 1951 Carrington speculated that the onset of puberty in human beings combined with other unknown factors might serve to bring on poltergeist activity in puberty Carrington wrote an energy seems to be radiated from the body I would almost it would almost seem as though these energies instead of taking their normal course find the curious find this curious method of externalization so essentially what the agreement is even though there are still some people who disagree what a poltergeist really is is a person who's typically under a lot of stress or duress is able to, and they have to keep, you know, either calm or do it or whatever they're doing. They're able to then have their stress and anger come out as psychokinetic energy and affect objects around them, throwing things around, sometimes even biting people and stuff like that. But I just wanted to, I thought that was pretty interesting and I wanted to clear that up for people because it is October and that is my thing. And I did pick the movie. So what you're saying is that Caroline kidnapped herself. Basically, <laughs> Caroline she kidnapped herself. She went into the herself. TV herself. She was like, I am done with this basic family. I'm going to the other world. <laughs> um, uh, but, well, before, like, my last thing. Mm-hmm. I, like, So you said you ended up not liking the movie. Like, we've been talking a bit. Like, do you still feel that way? Like, is it just because of not feeling fulfilled by the investigative aspect of it? Like... I mean, and, and again, like the whole point of like the house not being clean, quote unquote, was also kind of for that fake out right before the climax of the movie. Like, again, in screenwriting terms. I know. So I am like, do, do you do you still like you said, you're probably going to rewatch it. I need to. I guess this kind of goes into our rating at the end. So yes. how do you feel exactly? So I want to make clear, I do not hate this movie or dislike it. 
it's very, very difficult because I don't know. It's I, I need to, I, guess I do need to watch it again. There's just something about it that is missing for me that kind of just feels empty. And I'm still not sure what it is because like I said, the acting and the special effects um, and even just the basic story of the girl going into the spirit world and them having to take it back are just, you know, very fascinating and very well done to me. But there's something about it that's interesting. I mean, that, 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 that not interesting, that's empty to me and I can't tell what it is. And I, at first I thought maybe it's because there wasn't really that much of a story there or I don't, but like you said, I maybe if I try to watch it again and reframe it as an adventure movie instead of like a investigative paranormal movie, I don't know, but it's not a bad movie. And it's the one I do think everybody should, if they, if, if this is their jam, if they like horror movies, I do think everybody should watch it because it is quite fun. And it, it is, you know, what's funny to me is because, you know, it's like considered like a, a horror classic and everything, which is so funny when you think of horror classics and you think of like what movie classics are, um, uh, it, it, something about it just begs to be seen, you know, in a theater in July, you know, when it's like 112 degrees outside in a dark theater with popcorn. Um, and I don't, there's, I, I kind of feel like maybe if I had seen it in that context the first time, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have as much emptiness about it. I don't, does anything, I kind of rambled. Did any of that make any sense at all? I think so. So how many out of four would you give it? I, when I started, I was going to give it, I was going to give it a one out of four pitchers of sweet tea. My goodness. But I decided, I decided I, when we were talking, when we were discussing and I looked back on how much work is put into it, like legacy, I'm going to go ahead and give it a two out of four. That's fair. Uh, that's fair. Because you know, like that's a passing grade. Yeah. Like um, if, if it, if it had, I don't know if it just had, something else and i don't know what it is it would have been a three out of four but i I said i don't know what it's missing but there's something missing there oh and i forgot to tell you siskel hated this movie that's interesting uh (laughs) that is he gave it one he gave it one well you know what's well you know what's weird the part of the reason that's interesting is ebert is the one who hated uh horror movies generally so it's weird i like if he had given it one star i wouldn't have been surprised but uh siskel siskel was the one generally like defending slasher movies so that's actually kind of funny that he didn't like this one uh for me uh this is going to be a solid three and a half uh big surprise uh (laughs) i don't think it's a perfect movie i don't think the effects have aged well always some of the effects have aged like wine Mm -hmm. there are some that as i said are like amazing that it came out in 1982 but then there's others like the face peeling where you can like clearly tell it's like a dummy head and stuff regardless it'll still scare your kids highly recommend this is a family flick if you've never seen it because you're a zoomer or something check it out it's available in a lot of places i actually partly because i've seen this so many times i just went ahead it was free on youtube movies First time watching a movie on YouTube and it wasn't horrible. This is one. I mean, this is one I like so much that it even works as like a TV movie. If you have cable and it's like on TV or something, yeah. it's a great thing to have. Uh, if it's your first time watching it, I'd say try and like be engaged and pay attention. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I, w- it, I would definitely feels... recommend this to people. It's kind of like an intro to horror films. 
Yeah, it's a lot of people. Again, this was a lot of people's first scary movie. Fun fact about me, my sister actually, like, so I had heard of this before seeing it because this was, like, on TV when my sister was on a trip with my mom and she uh-huh. saw it when she was, like, five. And she, like, told me all this horrible stuff. Like, she told me about scenes, like, verbatim what happened. And so I knew, like, not to watch. And and later on, as, like, a family, we all saw it. And I kind of knew about the clown scene and all these other things because she'd seen it and, like, traumatized her. Uh, And the face peeling traumatized me because I didn't remember her telling me about that. And I was not ready for it when we saw it. (laughs) She didn't uh, tell you on purpose. She wanted that you to she be didn't remember. I mean, oh come on! How would like, that be the scene you don't remember? <laughs> she might have turned it off by the time the face peeling happened, or who knows? Like that's kind of the thing too. Is like she was like very young, like five. So like you, you, you blank out. You know what I mean? Like imagine yeah. like a five year old trying to tell you about their favorite movie. It's going to be like the most schizophrenic explanation you've ever heard in your life. Like like talk to a five year old. Like what happened in Spider Man Three? What happened in what happened in <laughs> what happened in Black Panther? Well, then the spaceship and and, you know, like yeah. it's it's not going to be actually coherent. Actually, you know, what? I'm going to revise my score because you just made me think of something. I'll tell you why. So I'm going to revise it to two point five pictures of sweet tea. And the reason okay. is because when you were talking about scenes that traumatized you, that whole sequence, we had that uh, one kid being eaten by the tree and that other girl left alone that was so even for me at this age was disturbing because it was like it unlocked my inner child and i was just like oh my god how would i feel if i was there and i was just genuinely disturbed by yeah there's a whole, lot of that by by that by that by that whole sequence and there's nothing really grotesque or anything happening but just that kind of feeling of abandonment i think there's was, also ca- just was like a wide variety well yeah, and there's just like a wide variety of haunts in the film, so like it's bound to like get under most people's skin. Something will. Something like if gore doesn't bother you, then the face peeling isn't going to bother you. But you know, maybe you were afraid of a tree as a kid, or maybe you were afraid of a clown, mm-hmm. or getting sucked into like a hole in the closet, like, or just like the, even just the idea of like a bunch of dead people floating around in your living room. Like there's there's a lot of different scary things in this movie and and even that like I the, what you were talking about like I I remember seeing this and just the idea of being stuck in like the ghost world after getting you know or that like everyone's rushing to help your sibling and then you are alone being targeted by this thing like there's a lot of that yeah or even just the fake out ending like the idea of you think the house is fine and then suddenly it's worse than ever right you know um but yeah like so two out of five that's not too bad uh but thank you everyone for listening in we have been the tv people uh (laughs) (laughs) no we've been whiskey and sweet tea hopefully you know feel free to check out any of our older episodes we definitely kind of name dropped a few of them in this episode if you're watching or listening to this on youtube feel free to like subscribe all that jazz but yeah thank you so much for spending this time with us we've been whiskey and sweet tea keeping Whiskey and sweet tea, keeping it Kino. One of these days, whiskey will get that right and suck at Scorsese. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye. Reels on the Rocks is a production of La Prince Laboratories. It is produced by Alejandro Castillo, edited by Andy Reisfeld, and features original artwork by Ace Esparza and original music by Pat Mars. 
Follow us on Twitter at Reels on the Rocks and tweet at us with any movies or topics you'd like us to discuss in the future. Thank you.